Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. Hello and welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. You will hopefully notice by the tone of my voice that I am not Miles. <laughs> I'm actually one of his colleagues, Sophie Barrington, also a wealth manager with a focus particularly on helping clients within the sports, media and entertainment industry. It is Will again in the hot seat and we're going to delve into some of the latest going on in the world economy and capital markets. On the agenda today, the return of inflationary worries. To what extent have we become complacent too soon, especially with the news of UK dipping into recession in the second half of last year? We'll also cover the latest on US politics and geopolitics where it pertains to investments, as well as what it would take for the other hundreds of stocks beyond the so-called Magnificent Seven to join in. Finally, a bit on the UK in the 1970s and any lessons for today following some non-word on the street podcast I was listening to this week. Shocking though, as that may seem. Wow, that's a disloyal note to start on, <laughs> Sophie. Yeah, I actually think I listened to the same one. So I'm looking forward to, yes, getting into it. <laughs> yes, agreed. Maybe we'll give them a plug later on. Not that they need it, to be honest. No, but no. Yes. <laughs> we'll, we'll get into business. It's been a very wobbly week in markets, with the centrepiece a shock on inflation in the US. Have we become a bit complacent of the risk here, maybe? Moved on before it was time to do so? Well, Sophie, it's a good question and certainly one that many are asking, not just, uh, you know, inside our investment team, but more broadly. And I, and I think, you know, just as a sort of buzzkill point, we need to keep in mind that, you know, inflation remains a mostly mysterious foe, poorly understood by academics, central bankers and uh, investors alike. That's not for want of trying, of course. To that extent, we're likely better off thinking in ranges of inflation rather than kind of point forecasts. Uh, and decimal places are just disingenuous, and the difficulties of accurately cataloguing this foe. And to be honest, you know, to answer your question, we're not yet sure how much this latest data point should freak us out. But surely core inflation rising again is a concern and is already changing assumptions about when the US Fed Reserve will cut interest rates. We're getting deeper into the summer by the looks of market pricing since the release. You're right, Sophie. I think we'd just point out that there's some potential noise in that so-called core inflation data, and it's particularly associated with something called owner's equivalent rent. This is basically uh, part of an attempt by the statisticians to factor in the changing cost of shelter for US citizens across a huge range of experiences. So it's also massive in core inflation measures, around a third in the CPI, the consumer price inflation basket. That is the ever-changing basket of goods and services that attempt to replicate our experience as consumers? That is correct, Sophie. And sorry, uh, so much jargon to wade through in this space. But I guess the point is that this is an attempt to measure, the owner's equivalent rent is an attempt to measure the part of the US consumer's experience of price changes, and it seems to lag other potential timelier measures of rent inflation. So the hunch is that this may be a blip on a downward trend, rather than something to run around with hair on fire about. We'll see, of course. But what about those seeing this as a wake-up call, arguing that we are now entering an era where inflation is more of a problem than it has been for many decades? Yeah, I mean, uh, yes. I mean, and we've pointed out before, we need to be humble about the longer term inflation predictions. They're not worth much, to be honest. Um, but, <laughs> but there are, you know, there are some changes in the wider context to take note of. So huge positives for disinflation over the last few decades, like 
surging female labor force participation, you know, more women joining the workforce in, in normal speak, uh, globalization, the accession of, you know, Chinese workers to the global economy, you know, those things may have run their course, or some of them may have run their course for a while. And some are arguing that with the aging of the global workforce, uh, something that's much discussed alongside the green transition, and even alleged deglobalization, you are seeing some of these things reverse. And there was even a book a few years ago, authored by a highly respected British economist called Charles Goodhart on exactly this. And perhaps these factors will be important. But my personal suspicion for what it's worth is that the technological context, you know, the, all the technology we can deploy in the world around us, that will dominate many of these things in coming years. Sorry, explain what you mean by that. Yeah, you asked for it. Uh, (laughs) So yeah, no, you're right. At the most basic level, just as a reminder, you can think of productivity as heaping kind of extra superpowers on workers. Um, And generally meaning that for every unit of input, you get a bit more output, you produce more. And that tends to mean that a unit of demand can be more easily met by the available workforce without prices being forced up to try and sort of cool demand as such. Now, as usual, I'm cutting loads of corners, proper economists will be wincing at the oversimplifications. But technological progress is generally disinflationary over time. And I think we're increasingly plausibly entering a period of accelerated technological change around the world. Like all forecasts, this is not a dead cert, of course, but our confidence is rising on the what, um, if not quite the when. Okay, interesting. But what about the potential for geopolitics to get in the way of all this? So with Ukraine, Russia, they're becoming hugely important in the commodity supply, as is the Middle East. And it's not just supply coming directly from those areas, but the shipping lanes that distribute them all around the world, such as the Red Sea. Yeah, no, and there's certainly risks here. You know, you rightly point out, Sophia, you know, we pointed this out before as well, you know, it- With regards to the troubles in the Red Sea in particular, the number of diverted container and other traffic are, you know, pretty staggering. However, most analysis I'm seeing so far is suggesting a small one-off hit to aggregate prices rather than something, you know, cascading into something nastier. Uh, The comparisons with the COVID snarl-ups look well wider the mark, thankfully, so far. And part of this is the huge amount of shipping supply coming on in this year and next, but there's loads of other differences too. You know, is there potential for escalation? Yes, You know, these are extremely dangerous and tragic situations in a world that seems full of them at the moment. The cold-hearted problem, though, for investors, you know, what they have in a sense is, you know, the judgment of what of this context could meaningfully obstruct what is increasingly looking a very attractive outlook for investments at the moment. Mm, It certainly feels like a more dangerous world. And I know I'm far from alone in in thinking that. No, you're you're spot on, Sophie, now, and I don't want to trivialise it, and I'm really not trying to trivialise any of that feeling or the reality on the ground for many around the world, whether in the headlines or not. I guess the problem is one of context, though. You know, we have an innate bias towards the recent and current, of course, that's just the way our brains work. And meanwhile, the kind of roving glare of social media and, you know, dangerously incentivised algorithms, they may also warp our judgment a little bit, I guess. Yeah, I've heard the team, particularly the behavioural experts, talk about that quite a lot. Yeah, as you know, we're very lucky to have these uh, these experts. The behavioural police sit on site, just <laughs> to keep us honest. You know, for what it's worth, and you didn't ask, but I'm going to do it anyway, like one uh, useful kind of historical analogy, I think, is the 1950s and 60s. And much of the, you know, if you think back to this time, 
I don't know, neither you nor I lived through it. But just in terms of sort of a comparison, you know, at this time, much of the world is experiencing an economic boom through this time, the sort of famous post-war economic boom. Research advances in things like polymer chemistry, the development of new diesel and jet engine technologies and the invention of the transistor and integrated circuit, they facilitated productivity improvements in a wide range of industries you know, and also the creation of an array of useful consumer products. However, this is also a period of, kind of real geopolitical and other strife across the world. Heaps of tragedy. You know, France, then U.S., embroiled themselves in deleterious, protracted conflict in Vietnam for quite different reasons. There's the Korean War, which, remember, when it approaches stalemate, one of President Truman's most garlanded, most famous generals, Douglas MacArthur, he asked him to drop 25 atomic bombs on, I think, 25 different Chinese cities in order to break it. You know, that, that alone is enough. There's the Suez crisis and all the afters, some terribly cynical acts by the US and a second term, Winston Churchill in Iran. You have the horrors of the Great Leap Forward in China. You know, estimates vary a lot of the casualties on this, but somewhere between 15 and 55 million are thought to have died of starvation, famine and other means. Now, I'm not going chronologically, and I've only named a couple of the lowlights, and there are unfortunately many more. But the point for investors is that behind all of this, the U.S. economy, you know, the engine for the global economy really, or, you know, increasingly so, was motoring. Productivity was booming and the message from the stock market and other returns that lay ahead was not to disinvest and hide. Quite the opposite. It was ignore the noisy geopolitics and focus on the productivity, cash flow and dividend trends. And we would make exactly the same recommendation now to a degree, not that we're not watching this, but we're simply not able we're never going to, you know, reliably call the twists and turns of the geopolitical backdrop. No one can, though many will claim the third eye, of course, as usual. But we, as in humanity, will naturally overweight the recent past in trying to predict the future. I'm obviously not saying there's nothing to worry about, but I'm just trying to get across that I'm not sure that these gathering tragedies you see on your social media feeds and those that you don't are a good guide to prospective investment returns. It's a quite different business. Yes, that, that makes sense, I think. There certainly seems to be a lot of geopolitical experts going the rounds at the moment. Yes, you are right. There certainly are. And not all are worthy of the title, of course. And yeah, I mean, but, but just to that point that we were just making, you know, for investors, the latest quarterly company earnings season, it's a pretty good case in point. You know, this was not just about the Magnificent Seven, those mega companies that bestride the modern world from NVIDIA to Amazon to Microsoft and so on. The median U.S. stock grew its earnings by double the consensus expectation going into the earnings season. This was a very strong earnings season in what looks like a very strong macroeconomic backdrop. That may change, but there are good reasons to bet that it might not. Yeah, well, that's really interesting about the earnings of those companies outside of the ones that seem to command all the headlines. Yeah, I mean, I think so too, Sophie. And, and to your point earlier... You know, the question on many investors' mind is, what would it take for the S&P 493, so to speak, uh, the companies outside of this uh, hallowed, albeit increasingly heterogeneous group, to catch up? And the answer? Yes. Yeah, we'll remain elusive, unfortunately. I'll dodge it. But, you know, this is one of the, one of the long-running holy grails of investing. You know, so what indicators, factors, news, whatever, could tell us when certain sectors of the market will do better than others? And think about growth stocks, you know, which the Magnificent Seven are very much part of, versus value stocks and sectors. There's simply nothing 
out there that reliably warns us of these often very powerful mega trends in sectors and styles ahead of time. There's lots of contributing factors from the regulatory backdrop to societal mores and choices to all sorts of other unpredictable stuff. And as one very famous investor quite succinctly put it, we tend to be linear thinkers and the longer a trend goes on, the more confident we become that it'll continue. And that can be very, very dangerous in the context of investing, I think, where you can find the rug pulled from under your feet by changes in the underlying context, changes that you perhaps hadn't realized were such important contributors to the trend you were increasingly confidently extrapolating, if I'm not getting too word jujitsu. <laughs> yes, well, very interesting. And it's clear that the investment team certainly don't have a very easy job monitoring all of this. Just going back a little, as I wanted to touch lastly on the Rest is History podcast I caught this week on the British political crisis of the 1970s. Back to your point on the geopolitical context in the 50s and 60s, the thing that struck me was the chaos, political and otherwise. You know, I listened to the same things. Uh, I thought they were great. Well worth a listen. Mm. It's a good example of our instincts to overweight the moment we are in to a degree and to feel like the moment we are in is special. I'm not saying that it's not, but the 70s feels a long way away and the population of this country is becoming increasingly dominated by people who didn't experience it firsthand anyway. We're reliant on descriptions and reinterpretations that are often sort of clouded and dimmed by the passage of time. True. I mean, at least for me, 2020 already feels like a long time ago. <laughs> I know, me too. <laughs> but sticking to the 70s, what other lessons out of that period for you and the team? It was obviously a period of domestic political turbulence for a number of reasons. And the story of oil shocks and inflation feels similar. I guess it's particularly the case in the context of the news this week that the UK economy dipped into recession in the second half of 2023, according to the latest data. You're right on all of that. I think that there are some similarities, like you say, and you can tell a pretty convincing story of the kind of geopolitical manoeuvres of the industrial age via the prism of you know oil supply and how various countries have tried to sort of make sure they're going to get it. I would recommend for those you know, suckers for punishment. Well, not really, but a book called Disorder by Helen Thompson is one of the better attempts at this for what it's worth. And I think very engaging. But for the 70s in the UK, I think the big difference to today is probably surround something called collective wage bargaining. You know, at the time in the UK, you had a dizzying number of unions to negotiate with. And along with some clear missteps from policymakers, this created a very inflexible environment for wages, which was a disaster when the, the oil shocks came. This mix of factors help facilitate that terrible spiral where wages and inflation chase each other higher in economically ruinous fashion. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, though, but this week's labour market statistics, it does seem like wages are quite perky. Is that a concern? Well, yes. Well, I mean, there's significant sort of fog over the employment data at the moment anyway. But I think it's a matter of degree. So wages growing after inflation, you know, real wage growth inflation-adjusted wage growth, up to a point is it positive, of course. In fact, if it's provided the space by workers getting more productive with new technology and other innovation, it's a great thing. It's what we all want. There are some who even argue, actually, that cause and effect can run the other way, too. So, you know, if you get more expensive workers in real terms, that can actually incentivize businesses to incorporate new technology to help, you know, make those workers more powerful, more productive, and so on. That can disrupt the workforce, you know, in the short term for sure. But over time, that tends to be helpful with aggregate welfare. Again, quite a lot of oversimplification here. But basically, I think it's different this time. Dangerous words, I know. Yeah, they are indeed. 
I mean, yeah, I should probably take it all back straight away. But I mean, one other point that I think they are perhaps going back to that rest is history podcast. The one other thing that I think you know, maybe they underplayed in their narrative in the UK on the 1970s. But, you know, they're historians, not economic historians. But it was actually that in amongst Ted Heath's troubled time at the top, the decision to join the European economic community was potentially more important than acknowledged. I know I move into, again, dangerous ground here. (laughs) Yes, Will, please don't get us into trouble. No, I know. There'll be various lynch squads waiting outside, won't they? But no, I'll try and keep us out of it. However, to put your mind at ease, let's say, I I don't think this narrative can necessarily be used to judge the pros and cons of our relationship today with the EU or the rights and wrongs of Brexit uh, for the economy. It's just interesting to explore, I think, the different explanations for the path of the UK in the period since the 1950s, since since the Second World War, really. Uh, And for the decades immediately after the Second World War, you can see the UK underperforms its European peers quite substantially. And there's a whole load of potential explanations for this. But high on the list was the fact that the state, and if you think about this, makes sense, had to take control of a lot of industry during the war, Mm. uh, you know, to make sure production, you know, all that kind of thing. And people are fed, your, your priorities change, obviously. Now, the legacy of this interacted with all sorts of other long-standing structural factors, and that left the British corporate sector famously quite flabby and out of shape in many ways, um, somewhat like me at the moment, to be honest, <laughs> post-Christmas. But now, here we find a fork in the road in terms of uh, the explanations for the re-acceleration of British productivity growth and uh, around the 80s. And on the one hand, some will argue that you've got the Thatcher government and it arrives in 1979 with a whole load of, you know, pro-market measures. They painfully reformed industrial revelations, you know, privatised state-owned businesses, deregulated, and ultimately they cut taxes from, you know, levels that most would not believe. You know, the top marginal tax rate was over 80%. Now, this can be argued to jumpstart the UK out of decades of, you know, economic slumber. However... You can make the case, and I'm not saying which one I agree with, but that that the much maligned Ted Heath actually laid the groundwork for these subsequent reforms by joining the UK to the European Economic Community in 1973. Now, this can be seen to reacquaint British firms with much stiffer competition than they were exposed to previously with the sort of Commonwealth focus, so helping to start the process of trimming the flab, etc., etc. And I guess the point I'm trying to make is that it is always tempting to commandeer like chunks of economic history to support one particular ideological leaning or other. However, the real world is routinely messier. You know, politicians are often in yoke to the underlying economy and its pre-existing idiosyncrasies and eccentricities rather than the other way around. And always beware when you see historical narratives telling you what you want to hear. <laughs> OK, so let's finish off with some thoughts on the UK economy lately. Following the news that the economies dipped into recession in the second half of last year. Oh, yes. Everyone's making a big fuss about this in the media and social media. Mm. Um, you know, from one hand, Sophie, I mean, I have to say, I mean, I don't think we're good enough at measuring economic activity to really be fussed about the decimal place too much. Again, you know, economic growth is quite difficult to capture accurately and, you know, real time, lag time or any time, to be honest. <laughs> uh, so, yes. That's one point. I mean, I would say that the UK economy seems to have been going nowhere particularly fast for some time. The wobble into negative territory in the second half of the year doesn't really change that story that materially, though there will be and there is already plenty of gnashing of teeth in the media and so on. But looking at that kind of longer period of stagnation, you know, all manner of 
economic gumshoes have tried to solve this mystery of who or what is to blame. You know, most balanced accounts will point to multiple interacting factors, some self-inflicted, but most not. One, I think, you know, that, that that's very high on the list is that, you know, Britain's primacy in financial services, uh, you know, the industry that you and I are part of, that's mm. been a, an area of key comparative strength and advantage for many centuries, to be honest. Before manufacturing, even, this was a global strength of ours. And certainly some people have made a plausible argument that this is the reason why we took off first in the you know, Industrial Revolution. But that became an Achilles heel. Uh, in the global financial crisis of 07-08. We experienced the shock worse than many others and paid a much heavier price in the aftermath. Brexit, I know we've already mentioned it, but that's certainly touted by one half of the population as unhelpful. However, it comes too late to explain all of the flatlining in productivity growth. So, you know, it's so far probably resulted in a little bit less growth and a little bit more inflation relative to our major developed peers. But again, you know, significant uh, uncertainty surrounds that estimate. Uh, much will be pointed out on the day of the vote, as it goes, actually. But we would urge caution in interpreting some of the more extreme claims on either side of the debate here. Uh, they mostly reflect ideology rather than facts on the ground. There's a hodgepodge of other stuff too, you know, for sure. However, I think my personal urging, because I think we could be here all day and I don't, you know, I know we've all got, well, you particularly got better stuff to do, but my personal urging is that, you know, not to get too bogged down in what the last 15 or so years can tell you about the outlook for the UK economy. This is a period where consumers and businesses have been bludgeoned by lots of shocks, more than you might say are usual. That takes its toll. Confidence to invest in the economy and capital equipment, you know, in particular, kind of understandably has suffered. However, importantly, that 15 or so years has also been a pretty dry period for productivity growth globally. Uh, so it's not just the UK. I mean, we are a bit more of an extreme case of it. But some of that is down to the fact that the last great general purpose technological breakthrough, you know, and again, when we talk about general purpose technologies, we're thinking about, you know, things like electricity, the compass, the microchip, you know, these big things. You know, well, this one that we sort of squeezed the last juice out of, that was really surrounding the kind of internet and associated inventions. And much of the productivity juice had kind of been wrung out from that big breakthrough by around 2005. So in the US, you saw productivity surge briefly from 1995 to 2005, roughly speaking. And, you know, you found the same kind of aftermath as for the UK. Now, the good news, I would say, would appear to be that the next big general purpose technology is here in the form of generative AI. And it is very much capable of transforming the UK's outlook if our entrepreneurs and businesses can find ways to incorporate, improve and innovate around it. So all is not lost. Don't get too focused on the, you know, the gloomy media debates. Things are going to be OK, I think, I hope. And I think that's quite a nice note to finish it on. It's always good to finish off on a positive. So thanks, listeners. A slightly longer one today, but there's been an awful lot to cover. Please do get in touch with Will or I if you have any investment questions you need answering. Otherwise, we look forward to speaking to you next week. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.